I'd like to say just very briefly as I begin the sermon, it's a very uh, significant privilege and joy for me to be here and to greet you uh, from your sister church down south, Covenant Orthodox Presbyterian Church, all the way down in St. Augustine, Florida. And uh, one of my joys in getting to know many of the Canadian Reformed brothers and sisters uh, is to not only be able to come and worship with you, but we have many Canadian Reformed folks that come down and uh, worship with us and make a little vacation out of it, even go surfing and chase alligators behind our church. We have all those options and would happily uh, invite you to come down and worship with us and visit sometime if you are able. This morning I'm preaching a sermon on the woman at the well, and it's a familiar sermon to a lot of us, or at least a familiar text. Uh, But the sermon really is, uh, for those of you that were around last night, this is sort of the explanation point at the end of our time together this weekend, thinking about the theme of evangelism. Uh, This sermon is one of my favorite sermons. It's one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. And as we're thinking about it, I would like to ask you a question, at least for those of you that are married. Uh, Do you remember what it was like when you met your bride? Now, men, if you're sitting beside your wife, you should be smiling right now or you are in trouble. (laughs) Do you remember when you met? Last night I told a story I'll I'll briefly uh, tell again right now that uh, I remember quite fondly when I met my wife, Heather. We've been married 21 years now. Uh, She uh, was attending a different college. Her dad was the president of my Bible college in Florida. And uh, like so many of the young men here, uh, I was praying for a godly, athletic hippie chick. And that was my uh, prayer request over and over. And one day, this beautiful young lady just floated into the cafeteria at my Bible college. Uh, She was barefoot, uh, wearing a broom skirt, uh, a long braid running down the side of her hair. And the moment I saw her, I knew with real uh, confidence that that was the woman I was going to marry. And she would often interject at this point uh, that it's really good I didn't tell her that. She would probably also take a little bit of issue with being called a hippie chick, but that's a different story. Uh, But there was a a real joy and excitement there that I can remember, as do many of you, I'm sure. And when you begin to experience those new and strong uh, emotions, and you begin uh, that cultivation of a relationship that that leads to a wedding altar, uh, there's this beautiful joy. Uh, There is this sense of being overwhelmed. Almost the rest of the world kind of fades to black and white, and that person uh, is, is all the color you see, so to speak. And that's what I'd like you to think about today as we move through this text where Jesus meets the woman of the well. In fact, I'd like you to almost imagine that as I'm preaching and we work through John 4, wedding bells are playing softly in the background. Uh, In my view, the wedding theme is really strong in this text, and it's going to come about in a few different ways. I want to set John 4 uh, against the backdrop of a few wedding moments in the Bible, a few occasions uh, when people, known people, meet their spouses. Uh, In fact, in the Bible, very often it's the case uh, that uh, a bride is found, of all places, at a well. Uh, There's a reason why we read from Genesis 29 uh, just a little while ago. Uh, There are occasions in the Old Testament uh, where a bride for a significant figure is met at a well. uh, Weddings seem to be formed at wells in the Old Testament. So if you think about Genesis 24, as Abraham is aging, he says to his servant, uh, you must go to my people and you must take a bride from among my people for my son Isaac. And there's that really uh, interesting story how they make this covenant together. And uh, the servant goes down and he's among the people of Abraham and he sits down by a well. 
And he prays out loud, God, uh, if your favor rests upon my, my master Abraham, might it be that the woman who comes to me and says, uh, can I help you with this water, that this would be the woman. He prays this prayer, setting a stage for God to act right there at that well. And in God's perfect providence, who happens to walk up? Rebecca. Wedding bells. Begin to chime in the background, for this is Rebecca, who will prove to be uh, the wife of Isaac. So that's just the first instance. The second one is the one that I just read to you from Genesis 29, where Jacob, who is now fleeing from Esau in this climate of tension, uh, he goes down to the people of Laban, his uncle of that family tree side. And where will he meet his bride? Well, he comes and he sits down by a well. And in the heat of day, all of a sudden, uh, these shepherds show up. But so also does a young lady named Rachel. And when they see one another, you just sense there's this momentum, right? Jacob, uh, who sees Rachel and figures out who she is, all of a sudden it's left to him. If you notice in the text, I think, that, I think the Bible wants us to smile a lot when we read. But the men say, uh, the stone is heavy and we have to wait a while before we roll it back. But when Jacob sees Rachel, he goes running up to the stone and says, I'll get it. And by himself in the text, he rolls the stone away and helps her water the sheep and identifies himself as cousin. He, he, he kisses her. And she goes running back to her dad and says, you got to come meet this guy. And he says to Jacob, you are, and this is language from Genesis 2, you recognize it, bone of my bone, right? Flesh of my flesh. Wedding bells begin to play in the background. There's one more. Exodus 4, Moses fleeing Egypt, right? He's just killed and buried. He's just ran out, and he goes out into the wilderness, and he sits down by a well, and who should wander up to meet him but this uh, beautiful lady named who? Zipporah, who becomes later his wife. Uh, wedding bells. So you begin to see just a little bit of a theme. The Bible often does this in narrative ways. It sets similar stages so that when you see that stage set again, you start to think, huh, you know, I've done this a few times before. I wonder if the same thing is about to happen now. So in this case, you've had uh, Rebecca found and met for Isaac at a well. Rachel found and met for Jacob at a well. Zipporah met Moses at a well. Now you come into John 4. And against this little Old Testament backdrop, you begin to wonder, are there any wedding bells here? And perhaps uh, your first thought is, well, that seems like a little bit of a stretch to suggest that in John 4, uh, we ought to imagine some sort of a, a wedding stage. But maybe it's not so much of a stretch. And let me explain uh, why. Uh, and when you get to John 4, you've come to it by way of John 1, 2, and 3. Right? And by the time you get to John 4, uh, we've actually already had the language of weddings twice. In John 2, Jesus performs his first miracle. Where does Jesus perform his first miracle? At a wedding. And he performs that fantastically. Uh, we, down south where I live, a lot of people, fundamentalism and all that is there. We would call this a distinctively Presbyterian miracle uh, where he turns ordinary water into really good wine. Jesus makes wine at a wedding. But not only does he perform his first miracle at a wedding, uh, there becomes this beautiful dialogue between John and uh, regarding Jesus. And the question is, you know, who, who is John and who is Jesus? How do these two fit out, fit together? And John says, 
I'm just the friend. I love this language. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the groom's friend. I'm the best man. I'm not the groom. Jesus is the groom. He's the groom. This is about him. Uh, This is all about his wedding. He's the one who has come searching for his bride. I'm simply a servant, a helper. You know what a best man does? He, he helps. He's not the guy. He doesn't get the spotlight. He works kind of behind the scenes, doing everything he can uh, to cause the wedding to go well, to make sure all the details are attended. That's what the friend of the bridegroom does. But very clearly, John identifies Jesus as the bridegroom. Jesus is the groom. So here's the question. Where's the bride? Who is the bride for Jesus. Well, that's John 2. You come to John 3, and you meet a very famous character that we all know quite well, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is the best of the best of the best, sir. Nicodemus is the emblem of all things good and righteous in Israel. He is a man. Uh, he is Jewish. He is a Pharisee. He is a teacher. He is, by his own description, a righteous keeper of the law. He's the best Israel's got. But Nicodemus, who is the very best that Israel has to offer, comes to Jesus. Bow. He comes by night under the stealth and cloak of darkness. Darkness in the book of John is a metaphor for evil, sin, the animosity of the world against the things of God. And that's how Nicodemus, the best of Israel, the high watermark of Israel's religion, comes to Jesus. And he asks him all these questions. He gets caught up in a wonderfully pharisaical dialogue. But he doesn't believe. The best that Israel has to offer at this point in John 3, the righteous teacher of the law will quiz Jesus, will seem puzzled by Jesus, will even respond with uncertainty regarding what it means to have eternal life, what it means to be born again, the very purpose of Messiah's coming. Nicodemus doesn't get any of that. And just as, what, just as much as he slithers into the story under the cloak of darkness, he slithers back out the same way. Nicodemus, who is the best of the best of the best, sir, the emblem of all things good in Israel, doesn't get it, put it this way, at this point, he's not part of the bride. It's not him. If he represents Israel, at this point, they're not getting it. Now with that, you come to John 4. And I'm, I'm working hard here to just kind of set this up. Because I think when you get to John 4, it, this is amazing. I mean, this is just amazing. You go from Nicodemus, the best of the best, to this woman in John 4 who's the worst of the worst. He is a male. She's a female. He is a Jew. She's a Samaritan. He's righteous. She's a woman of ill repute. He's caught up in the darkness. She's met in the light of day. But notice how the text starts. It says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. It's not just this incidental thing. It's providential. It is a divine appointment. Jesus is on a rescue mission. He is seeking and saving. He is searching out for those who are lost, broken, and torn, ravaged by the realities of sin, unrighteous in their own hearts. In contrast to Nicodemus, Jesus is on rescue mission. And he comes to a well. 
And this is a lovely occasion. He comes to this well here in Samaria. And as he sits there, this woman shows up. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. Now in English, the language doesn't come across quite as politely as it actually is. Uh, he's not just sort of commanding her sto- you know, sort of sternly. Uh, he's, he's effectively saying, please give me a drink. The disciples were gone. And notice the conversation that, ens- that ensues. The woman asks, what? You're asking me for a drink? Don't you know? You guys don't talk to us. Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans. You're above us. You're better than us. You think we're dogs. That was the nickname for Samaritans in Jewish language. They were literally referred to as dogs. When you see that language there, that's often uh, referring to him, referring to them. But Jesus begins this beautiful conversation somewhat similar to the one with Nicodemus. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you'd be asking him. You would be asking him and he would give you, notice the phrase here, living water whole lot more is going on here than just two thirsty people sitting by a well in the heat of the day. This is about living water. That well is simply a sermon illustration through which Jesus is going to talk about eternal life. Now, I love this. Uh, One of my favorite words in the English language is the word snarky. Snarky is a great word. You kind of imagine that when she says, Sir... You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? I, I just picture a little, you know, a little snarky dimple there on the side. Like, uh, you're going to give me water, but you don't have a bucket, and the well's deep. How are you going to do that? For a moment, she has the high ground. But Jesus said to her, Excuse me, I skipped a part that's important. She asked him, are you greater than our father Jacob? Notice how Jacob's name comes back into the picture. Are you greater than Jacob? Jacob gave us this well. He drank from it, as did his sons and his livestock. But Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water in Jacob's well, that well down there will come back thirsty again. But everyone who drinks of the water I've come to give will thirst no more. They will thirst no more. And the water that I will give him will become him in a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is language all over the Old Testament. Isaiah, Ezekiel, all the way back to Genesis. A spring of water welling up within him to eternal life. And the woman says to him, Sir, give me that water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now this is important because there's a reason now that this woman is at this well at this time of day. And her request of Jesus at this point, give me this water so that I never have to come back, uh, is a searching statement, if you will, because it exposes the reality of who this woman is and why it is that she has come to the well at this time of the day, which is high noon, the heat of the day. You notice, by omission, no one else is there. There is nobody at this well. There is not another townsperson. There is not another lady there drawing water. And that's exactly why she is here now. 
She has come in self-appointed isolation. There's a reason she doesn't want to see the townspeople. There's a reason she doesn't want to chat it up with the town women. And Jesus now will begin to probe deeply into the heart of this woman that she might not only know him, but that she might truly know herself. And so he says to her something that might seem almost insensitive and uncaring, but it's surgically loving when he says to her, go call your husband. The snarky little dimple is gone. With these words, he pierces her heart. Go call your husband. You can almost imagine her lips beginning to tremble. Who is this man? Is my reputation that far spread abroad? Who is this man who could say to me, go call your husband? And notice what she says to him. I have no husband. Now again, you might imagine if perhaps Jesus were really caring and sensitive, he would say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. This is awkward. I didn't mean to go there. I didn't realize he didn't have a husband. That's not what he does. In fact, what he does is the very opposite, and it is no less caring. He says to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. That language in the Greek is really uh, invasive. You've had five husbands, but it's literally the one, the man you are now having is not your husband. You've had five husbands, and you're now with a guy who you shouldn't be with. He is not your husband. Those are strong words. Those are piercing, arresting words. Words. That's checkmate in one move, if you will. And you might imagine, nervously, she begins to backpedal. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's got a great out. What do the Jews love to talk about? What does everybody love to debate? Worship. <laughs> Let's debate worship. That's an out. Evasive maneuvering. I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And notice Jesus, again, surgically cuts to the heart. Woman, believe me, this is not about mountains. The time is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship. Because you worship what you don't know. Again, straight to the heart of it. You're wrong in your theology. You're wrong in your morality over here with these men. And you're wrong in your view of how God is to be worshipped. The hour is coming. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. I love that language. And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Now in the Gospel of John, time moves from a broad scope, kind of like a telescope, down to a very narrow focus. Uh, you have, if you will, the year of Jubilee. You have the day of the Lord. Uh, you have the hour. And then with Jesus, it comes down to Him saying later, it's now. 
Jesus says to her, the hour is not only coming, it's here now where God is going to write things not only regarding worship, but his relationship with people because God is seeking. Here's the point. God is seeking a people for himself. He is not content simply to stay up in heaven, if you will. He's on an active rescue mission in history, seeking and saving the lost. That's what God is up to, and that's effectively why I am here. The woman says, and begin to talk about the Messiah now, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He's going to do what? This is fantastic. He's going to tell us everything. What did Jesus just do? Told her all about her life. Told her about right worship of God. But notice what he says to her now. I who speak to you am he. In the Greek, ego eimi. The covenant name of Yahweh. The God who made covenant with Moses. And the people of Israel. I who speak to you. Ego eimi. This is amazing. This is the God of the covenant who comes now to this woman as He's come now to His people, not in the thunder and smoke of Mount Sinai, but the gentle, tender ministry of a shepherd. This is Jesus, who is not only the Messiah in the flesh, the Savior of the world, and the Savior of this woman's soul, but in order for her to understand who He is, she has to first understand who she is. A broken, needy sinner. The very thing Nicodemus could not get. What do you mean I'm not righteous? What do you mean I have to be born again? What do you mean I need a new heart? How does any of that even work? I'm a Jew. I keep the law. I do what I'm told. Isn't that enough? But to this woman who is broken, a woman of ill repute, a woman with a horrible reputation, a woman who flees the town women because she knows she's that kind of a woman, to that woman... To that person, Jesus says, I'm the one you're waiting for. I'm Mr. Right. I'm the Messiah. I who speak to you am He. Now here's what I want to suggest again. Do you hear wedding bells? Well, if you're not quite persuaded one last little thing must be noted. In the Jewish way of thinking, numbers are kind of important. I'm not about to go kind of wacko on you. But in the Jewish ways of thinking, she's had five husbands. And she's now having a guy who is not her husband. And six is a very incomplete, unsatisfied, frustrated number that longs for what? Seven. So who will be number seven, Mr. Right? It's the I Am of Israel. It is Jesus, who is the husband of Israel, the husband of the church. And she will be a part of the bride of Christ. Not in some physical sense, 
but in the most wonderfully clean and pure sense. Imagine this woman who has been ravaged by man after man. Imagine this woman who has looked for love in all the wrong places. Imagine this woman who has woken up morning after morning after morning to know the coldness of rejection, the reality of abandonment, the scorn of the people of her town, a reputation she can never live down, now sits here in the presence of one who has searched her heart and told her what is truly on the inside and then identifies himself as the Savior of Israel, the I Am of the Covenant. This is beautiful. There are truly wedding bells being played here. And this woman gets it. Nicodemus slithers in in the darkness, slithers out in the darkness, but in the light and the heat of day, this woman's sin is exposed. Her heart is surgically exposed. And he who is the good physician has his way with her, but not with her body, with her heart and her soul. Wedding bells are surely playing, and this woman will become the bride of I Am and the body of Christ. Now at this point, the disciples show up. This is a nice little dramatic interlude here. Quick reprieve from all the emotion, all the intensity of the pace. The disciples show up. And I I picture the disciples, they're like the three stooges times four. They never get it. Until after the resurrection, I mean, these guys, they're just knuckleheads. There's no better way to put it. Uh, they, They never get it. And here's another case where they walk up and they're just like, uh, why is he talking with her? It's kind of awkward, but they don't quite know what to say. She, perhaps sensing the awkwardness and that this is an opportune moment to go, knows what she does. She sets her water bucket down. Why did she come here? To get water. What kind of water? The water down in that well. But what does she do now? She abandons that mission. She's on now a different mission. I love this. This is the evangelism thing now coming into the fore. This woman who has come to this well in the heat of day to get water by herself, because that's how she does it, leaves her bucket. And where does she go? I mean, just this is beautiful. If your heart's not stirred for this, I'm, I'm worried about you. Where does she go now? Now that she has been convicted, now that she has been confronted, and now that she has had this this interaction with the God of Israel and the person of Jesus Christ, who tenderly tells her the truth of her story and the truth of his story that he is seeking and saving, drawing her into this covenant union story, what does she do? But she leaves her water bucket, water doesn't matter anymore, and she goes back, but where and to whom? To the town. To the people, to the town women who have mocked her, verbally abused and scorned her, brandished her with all kinds of labels, to those very people whom she has steadily avoided, she now runs directly to. And what does she say to them? Come and see. Come and see this guy. Come and meet this man who just told me all that I ever did. The very reason she always avoids them is now the conversation starter. A guy, a man of Israel who I think is the Messiah, just called me out and called me home. Come and meet this man. Could he be the Messiah? And notice verse 30. They went out of the town 
and were coming to him. If you keep on reading, many believe because of this woman's testimony, and even more will believe when they actually meet Jesus for themselves. Notice, this woman, this is going to push you a little bit, this woman who just met Jesus had her heart surgically exposed, stitched up, if you will, goes running from the hospital back to the town people to say, I I think I've been healed. Come and see this guy. Come and meet this man. Come hear the Messiah. Let him search you. She doesn't go through evangelism explosion. No, No offense to whoever might be fans of that. She doesn't go through evangelism training. As far as I can tell, she doesn't go through catechism and she doesn't even get baptized. You know what she did? She fell in love. She fell in love with Jesus. There's a precise theological word from the theologian Bambi. She got Twitter padded. And the rest of the world turned black and white while Jesus stands there in the fore in full color. And all she can think about is him. All she can talk about is him and the very people who she has avoided. She runs right to and she says, I think I'm in love. When my wife and I got engaged, I proposed to her on the beach where we had our first date drew a little circle in the sand, got down on the knee, did the very traditional thing. She said yes. I'm pretty sure, though, sometimes I wonder if I just like remember it this way, but I really can picture like the clouds opening up and the first rays of light breaking through the day and, you know, seagulls were singing and everything was absolutely perfect. And I go to work at this horribly nasty job that I did at the time. Uh, she runs home from the beach and she tells this lovely story that on the way home, uh, there's a lady, you know, working in her garden and she just has to stop and tell this lady, I'm engaged. This guy loves me. He's going to lay down his life for me. I'm Twitter padded. I'm in love. What drives evangelism, friends? It's not me guilting you into it. It's not the 11th commandment, thou must go do this. Do you know what drives evangelism? It's being in love with Jesus. That's it. That's the program. That's all I got. That's all she has. But what could make this woman with that kind of a broken, jacked up backstory become that woman who runs into town and can't stop telling people about Jesus? It's falling in love. It's being overwhelmed with the one who not only does surgery on our hearts, but stitches it, binds it up in love and gives us hope. Forgiveness, joy, a new life, living water. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Have you met this Jesus? Now, in our church in St. Augustine, Florida, every Sunday I've got visitors there. Every Sunday, I'm pretty confident there are non-Christians there. Uh, So I'm asking you. I don't know you. You don't really know me. But have you met this Jesus? And have you fallen in love? Are you in love with them? 
maybe at times what we need is another walk to the well. One of the best things a married couple can do is break out that picture book. Turn the pages. Listen to that song we played. Hear the wedding bells. And fall in love. Because if you know this Jesus, he's a lovely savior. He's a wonderful surgeon. He doesn't pull punches, but he always heals. He always heals. And we get to talk about him. We get to be Twitter padded. That's the story of the church. That's what we're called to do. The Bible even says this is exactly what we are called to do. I'd like to close the sermon by asking you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 22. Excuse me, Revelation 20. It is Revelation 22. So we end here for this reason. I'd like to think, I'm a pretty optimistic fellow, I'd like to think that you're persuaded now that when you look at this text, you should be hearing wedding bells and that the idea that Jesus isn't just searching for water, he's on rescue mission for the bride who is to become the body of Christ and that this woman is now being drawn in to union with Christ. She's becoming a part of the bride. I'd like to think that you are persuaded but just in case there's one or two left that aren't persuaded, this should settle it and we all should be agreed like, okay, that's really what's going on here in John 4. I want you to notice now, John, excuse me, Revelation 22, verse 17. Think about the sermon. Think about this lady as the bride. Think about what she goes back to her townspeople saying. And think about, beloved, what you and I, as those who've been united to Christ through this precious work at the cross, in his life, death, and resurrection, think about where you and I fit into the story because this is where the Bible literally finishes off. The spirit and the who? And the bride. The spirit and the bride say what was the first word out of her mouth to the town people. Come. The spirit in union with the church, right? It's union with Christ is how it works. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who is what? Thirsty. That well, that heat, that dry parched land, that was all Jesus just perfectly setting the stage for her and for us to know our great spiritual thirst that can only be satisfied in Christ. And so the church, the bride of Christ, to the end of the age, beloved, you and I, with the power of the Spirit attending our voice, the church says to the world, come to you who are thirsty, come, come to this well, come have surgery done on your heart, come meet the one who will give you not just the water of the world, but a well springing up to eternal life. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Have you met this Jesus? And do you love him? Do you hear the wedding bells of John 4? Because if you do, and you share in this joy, friends, we have a wonderful Savior, don't we? 
we've been rescued from our sin and our misery. And we get to be Twitter padded and tell the world about the one who loves us most, the husband of the church, the Savior of Israel, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we thank you. King Jesus, we thank you that you are not content to sit safely upon a throne in heaven, but you chose rather in your condescending love and grace to enter into this world, to enter into history, to become a part of our story in such a way that our sins might fall upon you. The Father was pleased to make you who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in you. As we look upon this woman, we do so not in judgment, but rather with compassion, with empathy. We see a mirror of ourselves. Even if we have not lived out the exact details of her life, we know the sin and the shame of our own lives. And we know, O Lord, that you truly are the good physician as you do surgery upon our hearts, exposing that which must be removed, must be cleansed. You also bind up and you heal. And so we ask, O Lord, that once again you would return our hearts to to you. That you would cause in our hearts a renewal of our first love. And that we would find our place in the story. It is not our part simply to watch the woman of the well and to go home unmoved and uninspired, but rather, O Lord, to see in her a very portrait of what it means to be the church, to be told who we are, to be told of who you are, and to fall in love with Christ, and then to go into the world and say to them, come, come and see, come and hear, come and taste, come and be refreshed with the waters of eternal life. Pray for the saints of this church, O Lord, that even through this very sermon, your spirit would work grace in their hearts in such a way that we would fall in love with Jesus over and over again and find joy, love-driven joy, in telling others about our Savior, our husband, even Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.